genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. And then also making sure you don't go on gut. The number of people I speak to say, oh, I just had a gut feeling they weren't right. And it's like, your gut is the most unreliable predictor of how well this person is going to do in the job that you can imagine. Hello and welcome to episode three of Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast for business owners who want to build high-performing teams that genuinely care about the business you've built. I'd like to introduce our lead consultant and my wife, Leanne Elliott. Hello, I'm Leanne Elliott. And I'm Al Elliott, and I do pretty much like everything else, like the washing up and the client acquisition and all that kind of thing. Leanne's the clever one. So what we're going to be talking about today is, in this episode, is recruitment. Now, this is a big, thorny subject. Um, a lot of people are saying that they can't find good people. And so you think, Leanne, that you've got a great process for finding the right person for the right role every time. Yes. I don't I don't think Al, I know. <laughs> I know how good it is. So let's kick off a little bit, sort of taking taking back a step and go, I've heard about this this phrase called the fight for talent. Will you explain to me what that means and how it's different to two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Yeah, the, the fight for talent is is talked about a lot in the media and in industry online you're going to find lots of different things about it and I guess there's two kind of key streams to the fight for talent one is skill shortages um, you know there are some industries where skills are short and work is being done um, at government level to to increase skills in said areas such as technology is an example the other fight for talent really comes down to the competitiveness of an organization and also their ability to recruit. There is talent out there and you will not have to dig too deep on LinkedIn or even Google for organizations and business leaders who are very happy with the caliber and quantity of talent that they are attracting in their recruitment drives. So is the fight for talent real? Yes, yeah, it is, but ultimately, 
there is a lot of work you can do on your recruitment process alone to significantly enhance your ability to find great talent. Now, I want to I want to touch on um, on Gen Zs on millennials a bit later on in this because I feel that obviously I I'm, what am I if I'm forty five now I was born in seventy seven what does that a mean boomer. Am I, no, I'm not. A boom. <laughs> no. no, you're not. You're Gen Y. Gen Y. So there's a lot of differences between when I was applying for jobs and obviously people who are half my age now. Um, but the thing I do want to kick off with is asking you about freelancers. Now, as a business owner, I have a choice of either recruiting someone to do the job or using a freelancer. Now, can you think of any reasons why using a freelancer would be a better idea than recruiting someone and vice versa? I think it depends on the nature of the role. And that's the the number one thing you have to really think about and, and assess before you've even put together a job description or even dream about advertising for a post. And it's the nature of the role that I think is going to help you answer that question. If the nature of the role is fairly transactional, for example, if we use something like copywriting, the role doesn't need to go beyond that, perhaps in some circumstances. You need somebody to create copy for a blog. You don't also need them to interact with clients or support business development or the marketing activity. So if it's quite a simple transactional role, then freelancers might be a good option. If you're looking for a role that is more multifaceted, um, that is more engaged with the, the business and its customers, um, then having somebody who is, in inverted commas, employed by the organization uh, may give you more control over that that role and how it functions within the business. So t- taking account what you just said there, then we've just gone through the uh, the pandemic, the C word, not that C word, the other C word, COVID. Uh, so we've just gone through that. And so... Obviously, we're all being used to, not all, but most of us have been used to working from home. How has that changed the way in which employers should be thinking about recruiting? I think ultimately it hasn't. And I think this is the a lot in the media that frustrates me, and particularly as business, particularly larger corporate leaders who are really using this whole remote hybrid as an excuse for, for the great resignation and for everything else. And... And I think the reality is people's attitudes towards work have been changing for a long time. Remote work is not new. We've been working remotely in some capacity since the mid 80s. This is not a new phenomenon. What's new is the scale on which people are now able to work remotely or were forced to work remotely during the pandemic. What's that that's left us with is just a an acceleration in time of the evolution of the workplace. We were already on that course. I think it's just sped it up. And now that organizations have shown that it works, have made it work, they have less of a defense when employees are saying, well, I want to work remotely long term. I've proved it can work. Why not? So I think it's more that organizations need to accelerate their thinking, their approach to match the acceleration that that work has already gone through in terms of change during the pandemic. So you're saying that it's perfectly reasonable to recruit right now, which is we're currently, if you're listening to this in the future, then it's currently um, April 2022. It's perfectly okay to recruit and not even mention the work from home or the hybrid situation. In what way? So, for example, I've seen lots of a inc- massive increase in adverts for people who are saying uh, there's a new job opening, opening and by the way, yes, you can work from home or work hybrid. Now, what happens if you're an employer who doesn't want that? Is that going to restrict the pool of talent by saying, I want you in the office? 
I don't think it restricts it, but it will give you it's a, it's an equal choice for employees that is for employees in terms of what work looks like for them. What all the research so far has shown us is that the vast majority, we're talking kind of three quarters plus, would prefer some type of hybrid opportunity where there is an option to work from the office for a, a period of time. It's working out about 50%, 40-50% in the office um, and, and the, the same at home. Um, so hybrid is a preferred option, but there is no one fit all approach for everybody. There are lots of arguments as to why hybrid working won't work for certain people. And within that complicated arguments either way. So for example, if we talk about women in the workplace, there is evidence and a strong argument that for women in the workplace, working from home has actually been beneficial because they've had a more control over their work-life balance, particularly if they are they are parents, they have more flexibility in terms of childcare and their responsibilities in that respect. So on one hand, there's an argument and, and, a, and a train of thought that hybrid working or working from home is actually going to positively impact the careers of women in the workplace. The counter argument, and both equally valid, is that without having that presence in the office, particularly if your company is hybrid, then you have to really be reliant on the quality of your managers to make sure that you're kept within the loop, that your development is kept on top of, and then your managers aren't prioritizing people that they can physically mm. see and sit next to in the office. So there is an argument that could be detrimental for women careers, and it is then that kind of double um, double barrier. Mm. Um, equally right, equally valid, there is no one-fits-all approach. Going back to what you were saying about organizations potentially limiting their talent pools, I think the reality is that organizations need to pick a stance. And you'll see that, you know, you've seen some big organizations um, like Twitter, I think, is one, isn't it? So everyone can work 100% remotely, 100% of the time if they want to. Mm -hmm. um, other organizations have called people back to the office. I think the UK Civil Service was one recently that are now right. calling people back to the office. And others are, are choosing a hybrid policy where they'll dictate how much time one needs to spend in the office. Whatever you decide is going to match you with candidates who want that same experience. So tell me then, so if... For, for our listeners who predominantly are going to be serviced-based industries, uh, owners, so like digital agencies, creative agencies, that kind of thing, then tell me what is a good recruitment process? The thing about recruitment and the great thing about recruitment is it's science. There is so much evidence and tried and tested processes and approaches that will reliably recruit great talent. Um, and I think from, from my experience that aren't many SMEs, even you know, large, and I say SMEs that can be anything up to kind of 500, that aren't really thinking about recruitment in this evidence-led way. Um, and I think, as I said earlier, in the fight for talent, the first thing you need to get right is your recruitment process, making sure that you are recruiting the, the, for the right role, the right person in the right role every time. Okay. So let's talk a bit more about this right person, right role every single time. Now, you have um, a recruitment process. Well, in fact, we do because we developed it together, even though it's based on your clever stuff. Um, talk us through that process and then we'll go through each single step. Sure. So the, the process for recruitment really is 
I guess it, it, it might be turning on its head, perhaps what feels intuitive. But the first thing you need to really understand is the role that you're recruiting. So not the person, the role. How does that role function within your business? How does it contribute to the performance and success of your business? And what type of experience, capability, skills need you do you need to fulfill that function within the business? This is a, in a word is called job analysis. And job analysis is really just about understanding the specific tasks that need to be done um, and speaking to people. You know, you can't, it's impossible to you to try and imagine what, how this role will function as an individual, even as a leader, even that line manager of that post. You need to speak to people within the team. Where are we missing? Where do we need the extra effort? Where is work demands high? And how is this role going to contribute to that? Once you understand the exact functionality of the role, you can then think about the, the type of person that you need. And that's when we talk about competencies, uh, the knowledge, skills and abilities that somebody needs to perform well in that job. You're saying that it's almost like a collaborative process for everyone involved in this new role and so I mean I think that's pretty cool imagine I haven't had a job since about 1998 but I'd imagine if I was in a a company and I could see that we needed someone new then this just almost like um, this helps me to understand a how they're going to fit into the team b what the responsibilities are and c almost like I'm excited to get this new person because they're going to help me do my job a bit better Absolutely, yeah, and I think it, it can be <clears throat> it can be understandable to think in a in quite one dimensionally of, okay, well we need a new a new marketing or social media assistant, um, so let's just put out a job for social media assistant and let be done with it. If you then speak to your team and, and they say yes, we do need help with social media, but actually, what'd be really useful if we also had somebody who can manage. Um, certain aspects of the client relationship or it's more the administrative side rather than the content of the social media that might potentially shift the role and as well give you clarity of the level of person you're recruiting it may be that you actually just need a really great office manager mm-hmm. as opposed to a social media assistant mm-hmm. um, and that in itself means that you're by understanding the role means you're recruiting somebody into the business who's going to have an impact, an impact on your team, an impact on your capacity as a team, and an impact on your performance. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, (laughs) then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. (laughs) If you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important for us to say that. Yeah, no, we copied. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. 
It's interesting because if you were to look at visually, which you can, by the way, you can go to oblonghq.com forward slash roadmap, and you can see that we're talking about the first stage of this roadmap. But there are three distinct steps to the recruitment. And certainly when I've done recruitment in the past, and I think that most people, they start off with the search. So they go, right, I need I need a new person. So I'm going to go on to um, talentjobs.com or wicked jobs or monster jobs it's a long time since i've done any recruitment i think i've made all these <laughs> up but i'll go in there and i'd say right and write an advert and then it'll go what's the job role and i'll be like oh okay uh, let's think about this but what you're saying is that's coming last you start off by defining the job role and then then you you know exactly what you want you've got a collaborative process to get this role after that then you go to step two which is yeah, I think just to, you're absolutely right, that is step one. I think that the final part of that step one is to create an attractive offer. Um, so it, it's not just about deciphering as a leader what you can afford to pay this role or what that role is worth. And this is part of the fight for cl- for talent. It's really useful to speak to either recruiters or do your own research in the market and understand what the kind of going salary is. What is the average salary? Is there a comparative role out there that you can benchmark? What are your competitors paying them? And then in terms of benefits, like you said, is it a remote role? Is it hybrid? Is it is it pension? Is there is there training and development budget involved? It's as much about crafting the offer before the role even goes out to market because so many organizations will get into that trap of oh we found a great candidate but we can't afford them because their expectations are are well above it Mm -hmm. or organizations will agree to pay that and then you've got kind of this discrepancy of pay within your business it's a minefield so if you've already got kind of a benchmark idea of what that role is worth to use a business and what's worth in the market you're going to be much more confident when it comes to those conversations with candidates later down the line I think it's funny, and I'm sure there's a podcast episode in this somewhere, but paying people more doesn't necessarily mean that you attract better candidates. I mean, I've read lots of surveys where the, where the benefit that they, or, or the, the, the thing that they like about their job, it, money comes like four, five, six, seven down the, down the list. So what you're saying is that even if you couldn't necessarily afford someone whose expectation is 80 to 100 grand a year, then they might accept 60 if the employer brand is good or there's a work from home element to it or training development or something like that. Absolutely, yeah. And, it, and it's really understanding, you know, what what the drivers are for people or what drivers fit in with your culture. If you are a hybrid business, um, I know you've... Um, there's a blog on our website that you were looking at recently about the they're called super commuters, mm. which is an option where people will will live four or five hours away from where they work, but they'll travel in for periods of time, stay in hotels and then leave. The cost of that, because their cost of living is so much lower elsewhere, mm. then you know, it changes things. So if you've got that that option or that flexibility, um, or as you say, there's other benefits such as training development fast track routes to management potentially further down the line equity share or you know other benefits like this then yes yeah, salary isn't the be all and end all brilliant well i'm sure we'll do an episode on that at some point so we've got step number one which is define the job role step number two is so step number two is to create the process so a thorough job analysis which is step one is gonna help you identify the competencies so what i mean by competencies is it is the the knowledge the skills and abilities that somebody needs to possess or ideally possesses to perform well at that job or to do that job well 
once we understand those competencies, we can create a recruitment process that's actually going to assess these competencies rather than just kind of generic skills, strengths and weaknesses that, you know, perhaps more traditionally have been included in job interviews, for example. What we also know about the recruitment process from a scientific perspective is that using mixed methods is more predictive of job performance. So what I mean by predictive is that it's no mistake that there are certain recruitment methods that are popular, such as interviews, such as IQ tests, psychometrics. They're popular because business psychologists, occupational psychologists have shown evidence that candidates that perform well in those types of tasks typically perform well on the job in the future. So that task, that whether it be an interview or a job sample test, that's the predictor of job performance. So using mixed methods, um, so say interviews, a work sample test and a psychometric is going to create a, a predictive value um, that is higher than using one method alone. So using a number of methods to assess competencies is a good idea. And typically as a rule of thumb, if you have um, if you have a set of competencies, you should be measuring them three times in three different ways. Interesting. So, I mean, I've seen you with your spreadsheets, your fancy spreadsheets doing all this. Um, and, um, and it does look pretty cool. By the way, I'm, I'm sure if you're interested in this and you want to have a look at uh, Leanne's spreadsheet, then just um, email us podcast at oblonghq.com and we'll be able to send you some more information. Okay, so now we're on to step three, which most people think is step one, and that is the actual search. So tell us about that. Yeah, and I think just to just to finish up up step two very very briefly. Yes, it's about having the methods. Yes, it's about having standardized scoring systems to make sure it's fair and equitable for for all the candidates, and then also making sure you don't go on gut. The number of people I speak to say, "I just had a gut feeling they weren't right," and it's like your gut is the most unreliable predictor of how well this person going to do in the job that you can imagine plus it's discriminatory potentially and bias so not a good idea have standardized scoring methods for each of your methods of recruitment and finally consider the candidate experience and this might sound a bit I don't know maybe a bit woo or a bit too kind of nice in a world where you know you're just trying to recruit somebody for a role but the reality is that recruitment process your each candidate that goes through it is going to have an experience and that experience is going to be shaped by the communication styles and the emails. Are they dealing with one person throughout that entire recruitment process as a point of contact or do they have many? Will you provide them on feedback at each stage of the recruitment process? And it's building this relationship, one, because this candidate might end up being a key person within your business. So it's good to start building that relationship early. But more importantly, if candidates have a negative experience, that could have a negative impact on your brand. I think it's when you put it like that, it just it makes you think that why would you go on your gut feeling either positively or negatively for a potential candidate if over the next 10 years they work for you and their average salary is going to be 50 grand a year? This is half a million pound purchase you're making and you're making it based on, oh, well, I had a good feeling about them or they're wearing my lucky color shirt and stuff like that. So this is um, I like that there's some science behind this. The nerd in me likes that. Absolutely. And, you know, it doesn't have to be an expensive process. You don't have to, you know, engage specialists all the time. It can be as simple as, you know, using very simple evidence-led techniques. For example, an interview, typical interview questions tend to be like, well, what would you do if a customer was angry and they got in touch with you? Which is hypothetical. And that is 
less than useless because we can all <laughs> hypothetically talk about what we do in a you know imaginary scenario. So the best way to ask the question is for ask them to reflect on their previous experiences. So for example, that question would be, tell me about a time that an angry customer has contacted you and the steps you took to resolve it. Simple rule of thumb is that one of the best predictors of, of future behavior is past behavior. So we're coming down to the part that most people start with, which is the search. You have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I think the search, and this is a, the, the probably the bits that are a bit more intuitive. intuitive. Um, you know, think about the places where your candidates are likely to be. Um, where are they likely to look at, at job adverts? Is it going to be on Facebook groups or TikTok even? Um, you know, you, you don't have to always put your, your jobs on the recommended job boards. It's, you know, we'll broaden your search and you'll broaden your candidate pool and that fight for talent. Second, uh, engage partners. You know, recruiters... Are the recruiters for a reason and they charge a lot of money for a reason because they have access to a strong pool of candidates. Think about partnering with a recruiter if that's something that will work for the role that you're recruiting for. And finally, I think it's looking within your business as well. Um, asking your employees if they have anyone they could refer to the business. Also considering whether do I have this capability internally that could be developed? Um it's, it really is a case of thinking outside the box. The talent is out there. They're just perhaps not as easy to find as they once were. Brilliant. Brilliant. So we did promise quickly to touch on Gen Z and millennials. Um, so how do you see that workforce? Just so we can define then what is a Gen Z? So I'm a Gen Y because I was born in 77. So then how does it how does it go to get Gen Z and millennial and uh, So millennial is 1980 to 1994 and Gen Z will be probably about 95 to 2010. So the Gen Zs are starting to come into the the workforce now and as millennials have been around for a little while. (laughs) Um, Ultimately, you know, the workforce changes and I think what makes me smile is that every... You know, all up in arms about all oh, millennials want different things. Yeah, well, the boomers wanted different things. Mm. You know, the world had changed fundamentally. The world with technology has changed fundamentally. It's not a case of, of you know, you can moan about it, but they are, we are the future. Um, they're our future leaders. So we have a responsibility as professionals um, in, in people and culture or as business owners to do what we can to engage and nurture and develop these people. The principles haven't changed. The context has interesting brilliant okay i think we'll call that a day for the moment then so if you're interested in looking at uh, this this is the step one of our culture blueprint or culture roadmap you can find at oblonghq.com forward slash roadmap as ever if you've got any questions thoughts feedback or you might want to have leanne on as a guest on your own podcast then just email podcast at oblonghq.com Right, well, we'll see you next time for episode three, which I think is still to be defined. No, this is episode three. Episode four, which I think we've yet to to agree on what we're going to be talking about. It's very exciting. (laughs) Tune in and find out. See you soon. Bye.